Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 26, verse 3 this morning. Uh, That's found on page 586 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 26, verse 3. And this is our 14th sermon in this study of Isaiah. And, And typically during this series, I've preached on an entire chapter, maybe two chapters, sometimes even more chapters. And we normally, what we do is we take a a very high-level, big-picture look at this book. Well, today we're going to do something different. Today we are going to dig deep into a single verse. But this is an important verse. This is a powerful verse. And this is a verse that answers a question, a question that many of us have, many of us, even if we don't realize we have. And this question is, how can I find peace? How can I find perfect peace? And that's what we're going to look at today. So Isaiah 26, verse 3, you know the word of the Lord. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Let's pray. Father, we do all seek peace. Lord, our our minds are are, are turmoiled. Our minds are distracted. We are filled with anxiety. Uh, We are filled with worry, and and it makes sense. We live in a hostile world. But Father, you promise us peace. You promise us perfect peace. Father, I pray for your spirit to be with us. Father, I pray your spirit to open our ears to hear from you. I pray, Lord, you'll use my feeble words. I pray you'll anoint them by your, the power of your Holy Spirit, that they will be your truth, your words, the, the words that will comfort us, the words that will give us peace. But above all, Father, I pray you are glorified during this time, during the reading and preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for about 15 years, Lynn and I have been presenting what we call our parable of the pooch. And these are lessons where we illustrate biblical principles using our dogs. And these parables show us God and ourselves from a different perspective. And this change in perspective is really what makes these lessons particularly powerful. So the central thesis of the parable of the pooch is that our dog's relationship with us is a parable parable of our relationship with God. We are the dog's God. And we see our relationship with God in our dogs and in our dog's relationship with us. And the way we present these parables is Lynn will demonstrate a specific activity while I make the connection of the dog's relationship with Lynn and obedience to Lynn, how that mirrors our relationship with God and our obedience to God. And we usually start off with, with basic healing. It's, it's an obedience uh, move where basically where the, the dog will walk right next to Lynn uh, and follow her about six inches off her heel. And it actually looks like the dog is, 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 has an invisible rod connecting the dog to Lynn. So when Lynn turns, the dog will turn. When Lynn goes quickly, the dog will go quickly. When Lynn goes slowly, the dog will go slowly. When Lynn stops, the dog will stop and sit. And while Lynn is healing with the dog, The dog is constantly reading her body language, constantly watching for subtle cues to to make that tight connection. See, if the dog is distracted or if if his mind wanders, he'll miss the cues and he'll wander off. He'll he'll miss a turn. He'll miss the stop. And when when she's showing in the the obedience ring, this is really obvious. It looks bad and it results in losing points and not doing well in the, the competition. And this analogy shows how as Christians... We are to keep our focus on God. We are to follow him, looking for his cues. And if we're distracted, if if we don't notice the cues, if if uh, our mind wanders, 
we will get ourselves in trouble. So after obedience, then we move to agility. And agility is basically a dog obstacle course. And the course consists of these multiple obstacles, which include jumps and tunnels and seesaws and a dog walk, which is, which is basically like a little bridge that the dogs go over. There's an A-frame, which is just it looks like a big A. Hey, they go over and they, they go back down. There's, there's weave poles where they go in and out. There's a table where they actually stop and stay on the table. And there's a, a tire jump. It looks like a, a, a tire, and they jump through it. <clears throat> and the, comps, the competition involves different obstacles arranged in, in different comp, uh, combinations. And the dog has to complete all the, the obstacles within a time limit and without making any mistakes, without going off course. And, and mistakes could be knocking over a bar on the jump or missing a contact zone, like, like jumping off the A-frame from the top. Or it could be like uh, Bonnie's dog Jill did, instead of going through the tunnel, walking on top of the tunnel. So that's, that's a mistake. That would be a disqualification. Now the thing is that dogs do not know the obstacles. They don't know the order of the obstacles. The handlers do. The handlers know the, the order. So what the dog has to do is constantly watch the handler to know what the next obstacle is, to be directed to the next obstacle. And to make it even more difficult, at the highest level, uh, there are frequently traps. And these are designed to pull the dog off course. For example, there may be a jump right outside the edge of the tunnel, and the dog sees it and wants to go right over it. It's, it's so tempting for the dog to, to take it and go off course and be disqualified. So the handler not only has to signal the dog the, the next obstacle, but must also direct the dog in such a way to take the obstacle to be in the right position for the next obstacle and to avoid falling into the traps. And this is a timed event. So everyone is running. The handlers are running. The dogs are running. And the dogs need to, to be constantly watching the handler for these cues, which are often very subtle body movements, just maybe a movement of an arm or, or a hand. Now, as you can imagine, there are many great analogies for the Christian life. The Christian life could be thought of as an agility competition, hence our parable of the pooch. Right, think of our lives. Our, our lives can be like an agility course. We, we don't know the course. We don't know the next obstacle we're going to face. And it's easy for us to be completely overwhelmed when we look at this course uh, and, and confused. It's easy for us to get distracted. We often go off life's course. We're often tempted and by and we fall for the traps of this life. But just like the handler, the dog's God, knows the course, well, our sovereign, almighty God knows the course of each one of our lives. And just like the dog must look to the master to direct him to the next obstacle, we too must look to our master to direct us through life's obstacles that we face. And if the dog takes his concentration off the handler and goes his own way, he will fail. And if we take our concentration off our Lord and go our own way, we will fail. And these competitions, the dogs are able to do things that they naturally could not do. Things that they could never do on their own. They can perform at a, at a, at a level so much higher than their natural level. And why? Solely because of this connection they have with the master. They are so much better because of this connection they have with their master. Well, we too. We too are able to do things that we could not naturally do because of our connection to God through Jesus Christ. So if you ever watched an agility competition, either in person or on TV, the first thing you'll notice is that the dogs are having so much fun. They're having a blast. They're, they're excited. They usually cannot even contain themselves. They will squeak. They will bark. They will whine. 
I mean, just when Lynn is going out to train, once she, she, she sees her going out to train, they just, they just go berserk. They enjoy it so much. But here's the thing. We have the equipment in our backyard. It's in our backyard all the time. They don't go, they don't pay it any notice when it's in the backyard, when it's by themselves. They don't go jumping and running on it now. But if Lynn indicates it's time to cha- train, and she grabs her stuff, then they go berserk. And their excitement is not about the obstacles. Their joy comes from running the obstacles with their master. The relationship is the source of the joy. The activity is simply the venue to experience this relationship. And the venue could be anything. They have as much fun doing agility or obedience or breed or any act, just sitting and watching TV, sitting at, at Lynn's feet while they're watching TV or she's reading a book. The joy comes from the relationship. And at the competition where the dogs are having so much fun, where, where they're doing things that they would never be able to do on their own, when they're successful and they win an award, who do you think gets the award? Is the dog the one who gets the award? Is the dog the one that's congratulated? Is the dog the one who brags to his friends and shares pictures on Facebook with pictures and letters and all these letters that no one understands what they are? No. The award goes to the handler. The glory goes to the master. The dog just enjoys the relationship. The the dog is just having a great time. The dog really has no understanding what actually they've done, what they've accomplished. They don't understand the complexities of earning an agility or an obedience title or or earning points toward a championship. That that makes no sense. It goes completely over their head. They just know they're having a good time. He's just filled with the joy. But the glory, the glory goes to the handler. The glory goes to the master. And isn't this a perfect illustration of our Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism question one? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, we can have a, a modified version. What is the chief end of dog? The chief end of dog is to glorify his master and to enjoy her forever. There are so many great parables that we have looking at the dogs. And these skills that, that Lynn teaches the dogs, they're, they're not just to compete in competition. These skills make these dogs better pets. They make these dogs more enjoyable companions and can even quite literally save their lives. There's a command that Lynn has taught all our dogs, leave it, which basically what it sounds. It's like when a dog is getting, trying to get into trouble or something, and as soon as Lynn says leave it, they immediately drop whatever they're doing and come towards Lynn. Well, think about how this would be if you're out hiking out in the woods and the dog happens to uncover a rattlesnake, which is not an uncommon occurrence here in, in South Georgia. This could literally, quite literally, save the dog's life. One time in particular where Lynn was, where her training probably actually did save a dog's life is Years ago, we had a Springer Spaniel named Annie. And Annie was a terrible swimmer. She loved birds, but she was a terrible swimmer. One day, we're walking along uh, the beach of a lake with Annie, and Annie sees these ducks, and she decides to chase the ducks. So she goes off, and before she knows, she's in the water, she's over her head. And then she, she, she doesn't like water in her face, so she sticks her head up in the water. And all of a sudden, she, so she sticks her head up, and her body goes vertical, and she goes right down and starts to sink. Right? Your dog can't swim vertically. So Lynn, on the beach, she, she trained Annie in obedience and agility. So she yells, Annie, down. And Annie instinctively lowers her head. And then her body goes from being vertical to horizontal, and she's able to swim out of the lake. So Annie was so well-trained that she was and so used to immediately responding to Lynn's command that it was second nature. She heard the command down, and even though she was in the water, even though she didn't like water in her face, 
When she heard the command, she immediately complied with the command. And this obedience saved her life, or, or at least saved me from getting wet, having to go into the, the water to, to fish her out. Now, our parable of the pooch illustrations, they were born from this one verse, this one verse that we're looking at. Isaiah 26.3. Actually, Lynn started on her, her daily reading. She reads through the Bible, and, and, um, you know, and she just goes from, from start to finish. And one day she was in, in Isaiah, and she came upon this verse. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And she said, that's the look that I get when I'm training the dogs. And this principle that we see in this verse is so wonderfully illustrated by the dogs. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this verse in four parts. So we're going to to ask, what is the prerequisite for this verse? To whom does this verse apply? So that's first. Second, we're going to ask, what is this perfect peace? What does this this mean? What does it look like? Third, we're going to get practical and ask, how are we to stay our minds on God? How do we keep our minds on God? What does it look like? How do we apply this verse? And lastly, we're going to explore, what does it mean to trust in God? How, How do I know if I'm doing this? So again, if you're outlining... Just think of four questions. First question, to whom does this verse apply? Second question, what is this perfect peace that's promised? Third question, how do I keep, how do we keep our minds stayed on God? And fourth, what does it look like to trust him? So let's jump in here. Let's start. To whom does this verse apply? So this is a general truth to all people at all times. Well, to answer this question, we need to ask, who is the one who is acting in this verse? Who is the one who's taking the initiative? And the answer comes at looking at the first word in the verse, the first word in the English translation, Hebrews in a different order. And the first word is, it says, you, you keep. And the you here refers to God. God is the one who is taking the initiative. God is the one who is keeping them in perfect peace. And this is important because this is something we can't do. We are unable to keep ourselves in perfect peace. And I don't need to tell you this, each one of us knows this. We notice some daily experience. It confirms that we can't have this natural peace. That's why we so desperately seek it. Not one of us can have perfect peace on our own. It is a gift. It is a divine gift. Not one of us can have our minds stayed on the Lord if we do not know the Lord. We can't have our minds stayed on the Lord if we do not know the Lord. We must first be his. We must first belong to him. We must first be transformed from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And this transformation is not something that we can do on our own. It must come from above. It must come from God. And until God touches us, we have no interest in him. We may want what only he can provide. We may want worldly blessing. We may want peace. We may want joy. But we don't want him. And he's the source of all these blessings. These blessings only have meaning in him. Apart from him, all the blessings in the world would mean nothing. In fact, apart from him, they would ultimately be a curse for us. See, if we had all these blessings in the world and we didn't have him, they would be a curse. They would be an eternal regret, an eternal reminder of the missed opportunities, the missed opportunities for grace, grace that we foolishly rejected and foolishly rejected and eternally mourned. So God alone, God alone can impart spiritual life. It is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. While we can't put God in a box, we can't limit the way he works, he has revealed to us in his word the normal method by which he does impart spiritual grace, the way he does impart spiritual life. 
And this method is by the use of the ordinary means of grace. So the ordinary means of grace. We talk about that a lot in this church. It's basically what it sounds like. The means of grace are the means. They are the vehicles by which the Holy Spirit delivers or imparts grace to us. And so what does it mean? Basically, the means of grace are being around the things of God. That's the way we can think of it. Being around the things of God. Being in worship. Being around other Christians. Being in Christian fellowship. Being around Scripture. Being saturated in Scripture. Right? This is the way God speaks to us. This is, this is, this is the way we hear from God. We, we must read Scripture. We must study Scripture. We must memorize it. Hear it read. Hear it preached. These are the ways we get grace from the Lord. And it's the faithful preaching of the word. That's where we have power, spiritual power, power to impart new life to the unbeliever, to that one who was dead, now given life through the words preached. And this is the means that God has ordained. This is the way that the Holy Spirit imparts new life to those who are once spiritually dead. And while we have no power to regenerate ourselves, in this we're completely passive, we do have the power and we do have the responsibility to make use of these means of grace. So if we want to hear God speak, we must go to where he speaks. We must go to his word, his word read, his word preached. If we want to see God act, we must surround ourselves with his people, with those who are filled with his Holy Spirit. If we want to experience God's presence, we must go to where he promises to make his presence manifest, what we are doing right now in a corporate worship. And that worship done to our, according to our own <clears throat> sinful desires, uh, according to the flesh, but worship that, he, that is in accordance with his holy will as revealed in his holy word. And if there are any here, if there are any on the live stream, any listening to the, the, the recording years from now, who do not know the Lord, who do not belong to him, you're in the right place. You are participating in the means of grace. God is using these means to draw you to himself. And I urge you, I urge you, don't hold back. Surrender to him. Call out to him. Receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. Allow him to impart new life to you. This is the first step. This is the essential step. Nothing else makes sense until one is born again. And if the Lord has shown you your sin, if he has convinced you of the utter foolishness to attempt to earn his favor, if he has driven you to despair in yourself, then come to him. Now is the time of grace. And this offer is made to all. No one is excluded. Scripture promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but we must call upon him. Call upon him at this very moment. And at that moment of faith, at that moment of faith when we call upon the Lord, then our guilt is removed. When we cry out, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross, I cling then God counts that faith as righteousness. At that point, we are justified in God's sight. Our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ. Our guilt has been punished in Christ. Our sins have been given to Christ and punished in Christ on the cross. And Christ's merit, Christ's merit has been given to us, has been given to us and rewarded in us. And this reward is eternal life. My friends, this is the first step. And unless and until we take this first step, the rest of this verse has no meaning for us, has no application for us. But once this does take place, once we are born again, once we wholly submit to him, once we are his, then, my friends, then the fun really begins. 
Then this verse actually applies to us. Then we can actually experience this perfect peace that is promised. And this takes us to the, to the second point in the sermon. What is this perfect peace? And here I think our English translation really fails to capture the weight of what is actually promised here. See, in the Hebrew, the two words that are translated perfect peace are actually the same word. It's shalom. It's shalom, shalom. In Hebrew, repetition, as we've talked about before, indicates emphasis. As we've, we've already discussed looking at Isaiah chapter 6, where God is described as holy, holy, holy. This, represent, this represents holiness to the supreme degree. Triple repetition is used to indicate the superlative. God is holy, holy, holy means that God is the holiest. It means that God is the most holy. Well, double repetition indicates perfection or indicates certainty. And we see this, uh, this is illustrated in, in Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let me read these to you. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, and surely eat here is eat, eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Surely die is die, die. And the repetition here basically increases the power of the words. It's indicating the certainty of the words. You will certainty, certainly die when you eat of that fruit. So in, in the verse we're studying this morning, we are promised shalom, shalom. We are promised perfect peace, certain peace. But the word shalom itself has a much richer meaning than simply peace. It certainly does mean peace, but it also means wholeness. It means completeness. It means soundness. It means prosperity. It means well-being. Shalom basically means being the way we're supposed to be. Our existence is in accord with God's purpose for us. Shalom would bring us our highest joy. Shalom would bring us our greatest satisfaction. And we achieve our, our greatest joy when we do what God has created us to do. And not only doing what he created us to do, but doing it for the purpose for which he created us. And what is that purpose? It's to, for his glory, to bring him glory. We experience shalom when we are living at our chief end. As we've already mentioned, our first catechism question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is shalom. Now, sadly, in this fallen world, we often feel like square pegs in, in round holes. We, we're often forced into situations that do not match our God-given strengths and, and our God-given passions, where our gifts seem to be irrelevant and only our weaknesses seem to be highlighted. And oftentimes in this fallen world, this is what we're called to do. And we must trust God during these times to be glorified even in our weakness, even in this mismatch. But I can tell you, and I'm sure many of you can, can relate, this type of existence is soul-deadening. And it fills us with anxiety and stress and turmoil. This is the very opposite of perfect peace. This is the very opposite of the shalom, shalom promised in this verse. But here's the awesome reality. Each one of us, every single person created in God's image, was created in such a way that we can uniquely display God's image. Each one of us can uniquely display God's image. See, there's some aspect of God that only you can, can show, only I can show in a specific situation. And it can be because of the gifts we've been given, because of our temperament, because of our weakness, because of the obstacles 
we face or a combination of all of these that make us unique in a way that we can glorify God. And when we find this, when we, when we do this, we have found our shalom. Now, don't get the, the wrong idea. This is, does not have to be some big earth-shaking task, something that everyone recognizes. Now, often, oftentimes, it's, it's something very simple, something quiet, something noticed by no one other than ourselves. But important, most importantly, it's recognized by God. And it could be the compassion that we show a stranger. It could be kind words of encouragement given at the, at the right time that someone needs to hear. It could be in the, being in the right time, at, at the right time, having specific skills or, or gifts or even equipment that you can be a blessing to another person. You know, a person breaks down on the side of the road and you pull over and you're able to change that tire. You could be that blessing. God is glorified. That is a shalom. It's a use of, 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 of a combination of our unique gifting and interests and God's providential circumstances that bring God glory and bring us shalom. And my friends, there's no greater feeling. There's no greater feeling when this happens. When we experience this perfect feast, this shalom, shalom, this verse tells us how we can experience this perfect peace. And this brings us to our next point. This verse tells us that God keeps us in perfect peace when our minds are stayed on him. So what does this mean? Right? How do we keep our minds stayed on God? Well, it means that our minds are focused on God. It means that they are constantly inclined toward him that they delight in him and they delight by him. And God is our constant thought and, and our constant delight. See, every thought is kept captive to him. God, you can think of God as the grid through which everything else is interpreted and everything else is understood. And it means that we constantly seek to know God more and to know him better. We seek to know him in everything that we experience. And it starts... By having a deep, deep knowledge, a deep devotion to God and his holy character and his holy actions as revealed to us in Scripture. In Scripture. It comes from saturating our minds in Scripture. And when we do this, we, we imprint on our minds a, a picture of Christ's holy character. And then what we do is we, we search out that imprint in his creation. So we, we search Scripture to get this understanding of Christ. And then we search out where we see Christ. In the creation. See, God, God is the creator of all things. And he's created such a thing that, that, that his creation bears his fingerprints. God's creation has his fingerprints. And we have our minds stayed on him by, by diligently searching for, by recognizing and celebrating those fingerprints wherever they are found, found in the creation. But it's essential that we start with scripture. See, scripture alone is our infallible guide to know God. Not our, not our own desires, not our own feelings. Right? As sinful human beings, we must have Scripture as the, as the guardrails to keep us from being led, in, led astray by our natural inclination. See, our natural inclination is when we recognize <clears throat> these fingerprints of God in creation, <clears throat> our natural inclination is to worship the creation. When we see something of God in nature, what we do is we worship nature. When we see something of God in another person, we worship the other person. When we see something of God in a job that is done with excellence, we will worship our work. We worship this creation, the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And this is idolatry. This is wicked idolatry. And only an accurate understanding of scripture, only a firm commitment to its inerrancy can protect us from falling into this trap. So the first step is scripture. Knowing scripture, studying scripture, trusting scripture. 
And this is a strength of our church. We, we focus on this. This is a strength of the re- Reformed tradition. But what comes next? Right, for those of us who know and, and love Scripture, how do we proceed from here? Well, I think Paul gives a great illustration of what this looks like in his epistle to the Philippians. And this is what we've heard in our New Testament reading this morning. And if you would, if you would turn to that in, in your Bibles, Philippians 4, uh, verses 4 through 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 982. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. I'm going to read through this. I want you to take a look at this. I read through it. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. 982 in the Pew Bible. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So it starts with with a change in perspective. It starts with worship. It starts with praise. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then it continues with, a, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Give thanks. And then this rejoicing, this thanksgiving, it naturally leads us to prayer, to fervent, to, to heartfelt, to, to effective prayer. And prayer that the Lord will answer, will answer for our good and will answer for his glory. And this will bring us peace, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't it sound a lot like the verse we're looking at this morning? Doesn't this sound a lot like the perfect peace promised in Isaiah 26.3? But it's the next verse in Philippians 4 that I think really gives us the practical step that we can take to fix our minds on God. And the practical things that, that allow us to see God's fingerprints throughout his creation. And it's in these whatevers. It's in these whatevers that we see in Philippians 4.8. And these whatevers are the thing that we are to focus on. We're to focus on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. And these are the things that we are to think about. These characteristics, truth, honor, purity, justice, and the such. Now each of these characteristics in these lists, when defined biblically, not defined the way the world may define it, but when defined biblically, Each one of these characteristics on this list is a characteristic of God. Thinking about these things is simply thinking about God. And when we see something in the creation that is true, it shows us God because God is a God of truth. All truth comes from God. When we see something that is honorable, we see something of God because God is honorable. When we see justice, we see something of God because God is a God of justice. And when we focus on these whatevers listed in Philippians 4, not only will we have perfect peace, not only will we have shalom, shalom, but as the next verse in Philippians 4 tells us, we will have the God of peace. This is, we will have the God of peace. This is so much greater than this peace. Because really the only way that we can have the peace of God is by having the God of peace. And that's what's promised here. Now conversely, when we neglect these things, When we focus on the opposite of these things, we will not have God's peace. Our hearts will not be at rest. 
we will not have shalom. If we neglect whatever is true and embrace lies, if we practice deception and falsehood, we will not have peace. When we reject what is pure and we we lust after impurity, we will not have the promised perfect peace. When we do not display a noble character, but are profane and and flippant, we will not experience the, the joy and wholeness that is promised in this peace. Rather, what we will be do is we will be filled with anxiety, we will be filled with stress, but we will be filled with turmoil. But when we think about God, and we see that which is of God in the creation, and we focus on these things, we will be filled with his perfect peace as we enjoy the God of peace. Now the last point that we're going to look at this morning ties it all together. And it is essential really to take all this from the theoretical to the personal. The last point applies this peace, this perfect peace, to each one of us. It applies it personally. It makes it personal. And this comes from the last clause of the verse. It says, because he trusts in you. See, the way this perfect peace is is applied to us is because we trust in him. So what does this trust look like? What does this trust entail? What does it involve? Well, trust involves more than intellectual consent. And it, it involves personal commitment. In order to trust God, we must certainly know about him. We, we, we can know about him only through his word. And this is essential, but this is not sufficient. <clears throat> this God that we know about, we must also know personally. We must recognize his voice. We must obey his commands. We must step out on faith. See, faith is not something that we can simply learn through study. Even studying scripture, as great as important that is, Faith is something that must be learned by practice. Faith must be experienced, and it can only be done by actually doing it, stepping out in faith. And this is scary. This is scary. I can tell you, no doubt, this is scary, because what we have to do is we have to leave our comfort zone. We have to step out into the unknown of faith. But this is the only way, the only way we can build our trust in God. Back to our parable of the pooch. One of the most difficult obstacles in training and agility is the tunnel. So the tunnel is, like I said, they go through the tunnel. And the reason why it's difficult, many times when when dogs are starting off, they'll they'll get in a little bit and they'll pop out. The reason why it's difficult is because it's dark, it's turned, you can't see the exit of it, uh, and uh, you can't, you you temporarily lose sight of the handler. So the dogs are are going into an unknown. They're, They're all alone. But they must overcome this fear. They must trust the handler who sent them into the tunnel and that, that it's going to be okay and go in and come out the other side of the tunnel, not pop out the first side. And what this does, when they, when they do this and they find that it doesn't hurt them and it builds their faith and it builds their trust, and then the tunnel becomes one of the most fun obstacles that they can do. My friends, this is the only way. This is the only way that we can build our faith by obediently following God wherever he calls us and trusting him and trusting that he will be with us, and trusting that he will take care of us wherever he calls us. And I know each of us here, each of us here are facing difficulties. I know some, I don't know all of them, but God has called each of us to follow him. And if we're honest, we'll admit that this terrifies us. I admit that it terrifies me to follow the Lord. Because following him takes us out of our comfort zone. It puts us in places that we would rather not go. But hear these words that were spoken to another person who was terrified in Scripture. A man named Joshua. He was given a call that he did not want. 
He was given the call to take over leadership of God's people from Moses. And hear these words that the Lord gave him. To be strong and courageous. Do not fear or dread. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So my friends, the truth is he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. We are promised at the end of Romans that there is nothing, nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And because of this absolute guarantee, this absolute guaranteed truth, we can trust in him that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, and that he will keep us in perfect peace, and he will keep our minds stayed on him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. We thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And Father, I pray for everyone here. I know each one of us is struggling. Each one of us desperately desires this perfect peace. Father, I pray that we will be able to keep our minds focused on you. Allow us to see whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is lovely. Let us see the fingerprints, your fingerprints in all of creation and be encouraged by those. Let us be strong and courageous, trusting you, taking, stepping out on faith, trusting that you will never forsake us. We pray that you are glorified in all we do and you'll keep us in this perfect peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.